So I've just received an interesting email from someone I wanted to interview for the series. Take a listen to this. For background guidance and not to be attributed to me, I'd like to emphasise that some of the media portrayals of Giovanni Di Stefano over the years have been nonsense. Many claims about his supposed clients are patent nonsense, and he's not some eccentric, lovable rogue, but a dangerous individual with links to even more dangerous people. Hmm. That's not the first time I'd heard something like that since starting to work on this story about the enigmatic Giovanni Di Stefano. And it reminded me of something that Charlotte Eager had said to me too. There was always something about this piece that was quite weird and a bit, a bit chilling. Charlotte is the journalist from the Evening Standard who'd written about Giovanni Di Stefano back in 2007. I mean, you can start from one thing alone, really. He was a friend of Arkan's. Arkan, Arkan was a very evil and very powerful man. He was the gangster king of Belgrade, and Belgrade at that point was a kind of kleptocracy. The war had brought in enormous amounts of, of opportunities for people without scruples to make money. Sanction busting, drug smuggling, gun smuggling. A dangerous individual with links to even more dangerous people, with links to drug smuggling. If that was true, then there was no place it was truer than Belgrade in the 90s. And after his foray into the movie business at MGM, we know that's where Giovanni went. So, I went there too. From What's the Story Sounds, this is Swindler, Saviour, Mobster, Spy. Episode 4, The Yugoslav Years. Before I can dissect Giovanni's next moves, we need to understand a bit about the Yugoslavia that Giovanni became a major player within. So I'm at the Museum of Yugoslavia in Belgrade um, after just having a very interesting tour around the museum, which unfortunately I wasn't able to record. So I've come out to a rather pleasant water fountain to see if I can remember what was said. Uh, so here goes. So, took some notes. My notes weren't very good, so Studio Me will interject where I got something wrong. So the history of Yugoslavia goes back centuries, but I'm going to start in 1918, on the 1st of December, and the Kingdom of Serbs, Croats and Slovenes are created in Belgrade, and it's made up of 33 different areas, different regions within quite a large area. And then for the first 10 years or so, it's quite turbulent, it's quite a turbulent time, and to promote unity in 1929, the name is changed to the Kingdom of Yugoslavia. A decade later, World War II breaks out in which Yugoslavia initially remains neutral, but is later invaded and divided along ethnic and religious lines. The newly independent Croatia, controlled by Nazi Germany, persecutes and kills hundreds of thousands of Serbs. A revolutionary by the name of Joseph Broz Tito leads the communist partisans to victory and Tito becomes the first president of Yugoslavia and a president for life, or dictator if you will. And my understanding was this man and 
His government brought prosperity to the region and it was quite a pleasant place to live. Tito brought prosperity through sheer charisma and foreign aid from both the US and the Soviet Union came flooding in. 1974, the federal constitution adopted a collective presidency which consisted of one representative from each republic, so that's Serbia, Montenegro, Slovenia, Croatia, Bosnia and Macedonia. The ethnic and religious divisions were quelled somewhat through any means necessary to maintain something called brotherhood and unity. Essentially snuffing out nationalism wherever it reared its ugly head. But as happens to all of us, in 1980, on May the 4th, Joseph Broz Tito died. Tito's funeral is still, based on the number of attending politicians and state delegations, the largest state funeral in history. And not long after his death, so too died the dream of Yugoslavia. So I'm stood in Tito's mausoleum, which sits on a hillside overlooking Belgrade. And it's, and it's quiet and very respectful here. For many, this man was clearly the hero of Yugoslavia, the charismatic glue that kept it all together. Listen here to what's written on the wall beside his tomb. Tito was the most recognisable, strongest and inviolable symbol of socialist Yugoslavia. His death decapitated the symbolic order and caused a dramatic crisis in the Yugoslav society. Hello, Millie. How are you? Nice. Yeah, good, thank you. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Is it Milica or Milica? Milica. Milica. Okay. Milica. Milica Stojanovic is a Belgrade-based journalist of the Balkan Investigative Reporting Network. Socialist Federative Republic of Yugoslavia was, um, so to say, communist or socialist country. And when communism started to falling down in countries like Russia, and when uh, Josip Broz Tito, a Yugoslav leader, died, some other, so to say, ideas and ideologies starting to rise in Yugoslavia. Nationalism was, unfortunately, one of them. By the time when, uh, for example, Berlin Wall fall, nationalist forces in Yugoslavia were starting to get uh, bigger and bigger. Together with that, parallel with that, socialist Yugoslavia was in very bad economic situation. So all that mixed up brought us to the end of the 1980s. The one-party system had come to an end in Yugoslavia and the new leadership was made up of presidents from each of the member states, all of whom Milica told me were from nationalist parties. And it's divided by ethnic lines, religious lines? Well, that's the problem. Because the states that were, so to say, members of uh, Yugoslavia had some, how to say it, administrative borders, but those borders were not the same as the ethnical borders. Many books have been written and documentaries made about the intricacies of the fall of Yugoslavia, and I don't have time to delve into the details, so excuse my simplistic summary. But essentially, member states start to declare their independence from Yugoslavia starting with Slovenia, then Croatia. But as Milica said, the problem was that the administrative borders did not necessarily match the ethnic or religious borders. 
meaning there were ethnic Serbs in Croatia and Slovenia, and so Serbia wasn't best pleased by their desires for independence. In Bosnia and Herzegovina, the situation was even worse, because not only that you have Serbs, Croats and Bosnian Muslims, that was the name at the time, not only that you had them living in the same country, but they were totally mixed up. It was impossible to draw a solid line between them, and one of the reasons war was, so to say, needed, is that you can actually change complete ethnical structure of Bosnia and Herzegovina and make solid, ethnically clean territories. That, that was what happening. Slobodan Milosevic, who'd become president of Serbia by tapping into a newly growing sense of nationalism, set out to quote-unquote protect Serbs in the states that were vying for independence, and war broke out. To be precise, we had four wars. Okay. First, in Slovenia, the most western Yugoslav state. It, it was the war between like Slovenia and one of the pillars of Yugoslavia, which was Yugoslav People's Army. It, it was federal army, so that was the first conflict. It lasted like maybe 10 days. Then war started in Croatia in 1991. Then next war started in Bosnia in 1992, and both of these wars were ended up in uh, officially in 1995. And then war in Kosovo started, uh, I, I would say, in 1998. It started, and in 1999 it was done. It's estimated that these wars led to the deaths of 140,000 people, with over 2 million people displaced. And Giovanni, Giovanni decided to move there. Belgrade wasn't the front line of the war per se, but then in a war, the front line is everywhere, really. The city he entered was totally altered by war. I wanted something to mark the moment. I wanted to... Something to say this was the moment when I, I took decisions for myself. Five years later, and once Giovanni had settled in, Michael went to join his dad in Belgrade. And so I get on the BA flight, and I buy Wilbur the Bear. <laughs> And Describe he, him for me. Wilbur the bear is one of the old teddy bears from the old British Airways fleets. Michael is 17 and his journey of interrogation into his dad's life begins. This is representative of a, of a moment, I suppose, this, isn't it? This is the I intersecting remember. of your life and your dad's. This is, this is yeah. a... Well, this was the change of the reality as I knew it. You know, life as I knew it had ended. Tell me, tell me about that period of time and the kind of coming face to face with the reality of your dad's new world. The honest truth of it is that I was so excited by the idea of something new that anything that might have been negative, I didn't give a rat's ass about. I just didn't care. You heard in episode two about Michael's adventure into his dad's filing cupboard where he started to see the scale and absurdity of Giovanni's correspondence. Letters from the White House, from Benjamin Netanyahu and the PLO. It was, it was too much for me. And so I find myself reading, but I don't really know what I'm reading. I'm just reading fucking words. And I'd never known my dad to have bodyguards before, but Belgrade, all of a sudden, bodyguards come into it and they would all call him, you know, General Commandant. 
When I went there in 1997, and the only thing I can liken it to is Goodfellas. I mean, literally, that film Goodfellas, if, if you were the people, a table would be fucking created for you. It, just, it was normal. It, there was nothing, there was no, you didn't expect it. It was just, that's the way it is. Do you still have questions about his time in, in Yugoslavia? I think we all do in a way. Um, but I don't think we'll ever get answers to those questions. Well, I'm not even sure they're the sort of questions I should be talking about as openly, but the obvious question that springs to mind was, you know, how many people were killed because of you? As a consequence of your involvement, did anybody die? I don't ask the question because I'm not sure if I fear I might not get an honest answer. And if you did get an honest answer and you didn't like it? It wouldn't be the first time. Okay, so when I got that email at the start of this episode warning me about some nefarious connections, maybe that springs from his relationships with dangerous and powerful people in Serbia. Hello. Hello, Miriam. Welcome back to the old place where we lived. <laughs> is, this, is this it? That is. Back in Belgrade, I'm meeting Mirjana again outside Giovanni's uh, old snazzy apartment overlooking the Sava River. Yeah. He always preferred to stay here because he was sure that no one can come in no one can shoot him. <laughs> really? No one so can go in. So he was thinking in. about that at this time? Miriana is Giovanni's third wife. You heard from her in the last episode. There was the place where even Arkan later was killed and died. Well, let's go and talk about... Let's go and sit and talk about yeah. the, the time, the seven let's years. Do you, have you, I was saying, have you had something to eat? Or do you want to go and get some food now? If or? you want. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. It might be nice Milan to sit will down. take us to the boat. Let's, you have to go to the river. I, let's, do have, let's do that then. Let's do that. Miriana's son, Milan, drove us to a delightful riverboat restaurant to talk about the seven years Giovanni spent in Belgrade. Milan is Giovanni's stepson, though I noticed throughout the conversation that Milan refers to Giovanni as dad. At dinner the night before, Miriana had described Giovanni as a mystery man. Before our food arrived, I asked her why she thought he was here in the first place. It's interesting that even you, Miriana, who knows him better than anyone, still has that, like, I don't know, I don't actually know. I actually can tell you that I really don't know and that I always made some question which I would always receive half an answers. I remember that last time when I asked him some like difficult questions, he replied to me, uh, these are uh, things which are uh, like top secrets and I can't tell you because that is the way how I protect you, not telling you. So uh, living so many years with someone, you learn not to ask these difficult questions because once his father, uh, my uh, father-in-law Michele came to Rome and in, during that visit his own father asked me, he said, Mirjana, can you tell me how it is possible my only son that wherever he goes, wherever he travels, he always meets these top people. How he comes to the top because we are just normal family. What is my son doing? So he has been for many, many years mystery, even for his own parents. What Miriana does know is that it was his friendship with the businessman Radojca Nikcevic that allowed him to rise so highly. 
he was his best friend here. He is the man which introduced him to Milosevic. And so highly did he rise. And thanks to him, he started uh, having uh, important friends on a high position in Serbia. After a couple of months being here, he already knew people that like ordinary business person living here wouldn't know in all his life. Also, since we're mentioning Radojca Nikčević, we also need to mention Željko Rajnjatović Arkan, who is also Radojca and Željko were his two best friends here. Željko Raznatović, otherwise known as Arkan, became Giovanni's best friend. Now that's not one of his embellishments, by the way. Giovanni was Arkan's best man at his wedding to Serbian pop sensation Setsa. But why are we concerning ourselves with Giovanni's social life? Well, when you understand who Arkan was, you start to question Giovanni's motivations. Or at the very least, his moral compass. At least I did. What's uh, really interesting with him, he was a celebrity. Right. He was a celebrity even back then, he was like a street legend. But basically he was a thief. A thief? Milica Stojanovic has covered Arkan extensively. That's why I met her in a Belgrade park, to get an understanding of who this man was and the context in which he operated. Our nationalist uh, forces became strong. Uh, we had wartime propaganda already growing and growing and growing. The, the atmosphere was heating. And I have to make one small note. Uh, across Yugoslavia, there were many football clubs that were state-owned. And in Belgrade, two most important were uh, football club Partizan and football club Red Star uh, Crvena Zvezda. And the Serbian state security basically made Arkan the leader of the Red Star Belgrade Football Club's supporters group. That was mostly because with rise of those new political parties, it became clear that part of, uh, part of those fans uh, are also fans of these parties. So in order to politically calm them down and bring them under control, state imposed Arkan there. And because he was legend and he was very popular, that he was totally well received there. So Arkan made his start as a gangster-turned-state-sanctioned football hooligan. It's not a world I know, but... That was the life in Belgrade of that time. Now, I know this is getting complicated and I'm doing my best to sum up a messy situation. But essentially when war breaks out in Yugoslavia, Serbia doesn't want to become directly involved. They don't want to send their own army. So one way to be part of the wars indirectly was to establish paramilitary units. Well, who better to call than their go-to football hooligan? Arkan sets up a group called the Serb Volunteer Guards, better known as Arkan's Tigers. So that's how he ended up being a, a warlord. I mean, he was properly bad. I mean, his, his paramilitary unit was very, very... Um, prominent in the first war in the Balkans, the one between Croatia and Serbia, and brutally killed large numbers of people. Charlotte Eager was the journalist who wrote about Giovanni back in 2007. Incidentally, she'd worked in Yugoslavia throughout the Balkans war too. We know the very beginning of that war, I used to go around interviewing refugees, and so many of them would say the same thing. They'd say we were living in our village and it was all fine, and we had no problems with our neighbours and our Serb neighbours, and then one day Arkan's men came to the village. And what Arkan's men would do 
would they get out the head serb and the head Muslim and they'd say to the head serb, kill the head Muslim. And the head serb would say, he's not, I can't kill him, he's my friend. No, I'm not going to kill him. So then Arkansas would then kill the head serb and then they would say to the second head serb, now you kill the head Muslim. And the second head serb, having just seen his friend head blown off, would obviously do the job. And so immediately you polarise the community. So they went around creating an atmosphere of violence and fear and suspicion and burning people's houses down, you know, murdering people, raping women. They were not important in, in combats. They were important in some sort of psychological war because if you are a civilian and living in a village in Croatia or Bosnia and you heard that uh, tigers are coming to your village, you will leave it in a two minutes without looking back. That's what, what was their main role in that war, to, to fear people so that people run away without you make them run away. If you heard that uh, Arkan man is coming, you will just leave. Were they right to be scared, do you think? Were they right to run away? From everything that we know, they were right to be scared. And he was not some, some guy that is like, you know, crazy or something, and you can report him to the police. There is no one that can save, that can save you from him. That's the problem. I remember interviewing the mayor of Focha and he said, you know, we used to have 30,000 Muslims in this town and now we've got one and he's in prison. Everybody was lying to us. Oh yes, the Muslims just decided to go away one day. And we were in a shop and this madman came in. He started screaming, genocide, genocide. Tito and Arkan made this genocide, genocide, genocide. And everybody in the shop just sort of looked at their shoes. And only, the only person in the town telling the truth was mad. So yeah, Giovanni was best mates with this bloke. Oh, not just best mates. Giovanni became an honorary general of Arkans Tigers. What would it say about someone who was so proud to be that person's friend? What would you say about that person? I'm not sure what to say, but it's like I I, I would say that person should uh, should choose their friends more wisely. We could say that war is that war was complicated. We can talk about that war, but Arkan role I don't see how that can how we can see that as a complicated. It, I think it's pretty clear what what that was. Okay, let's take a breather. Giovanni De Stefano, supposedly on the run from important people in Hollywood, arrives in wartime Belgrade, quickly works his way up to a friendship with the president, gains citizenship, then becomes best mates with a gangster and warlord. If this was my dad, I reckon I'd have disowned him by now. At least a little bit. Does no part of you think, what the fuck was my dad involved with these people for? Yeah, of course. I mean, after... In the moment, I'm, I'm a kid. I, I, I don't care. I don't, it's beyond any form of thinking. I, I didn't see any of that as being something that really needed to concern me. I'm absolutely fucking positive that my moral compass is, is far more aligned than his is. Okay, that's good, I suppose. I've spent a lot of time in Michael's company now and I've started to like him. So it's good to know that he has a moral compass. But you see, in Michael's eyes, it's not as simple as good versus evil. Does this aspect, this the Yugoslav years, does this play into your kind of theory that, that there was something else going on with your dad, that there was a, a controlling hand, maybe? It all just seemed too convenient. Like I said, I've said before, if it's all luck, it's amazing. But 
he's just an inconspicuous five foot five, five foot six, chubby, balding Italian. He's just a small guy who's pretty smart. I, I never understood. I never accepted that chance took him in there. The leaving of America conveniently, the arriving in Yugoslavia, the, the welcoming committee, becoming a citizen, becoming an advisor to high power, and then all of a sudden becoming or establishing a friendship with someone who's, you know, seen as, as, as a mafia figure um, in the entire region. All of a sudden, you're in every element, you're in each other's pockets, you're in every element of each other's business. And that makes sense. Maybe you can look past your dad's shady associations if it was a job. If the British government had placed him there with some kind of geopolitical espionage mission. I do get that. But then separately, Michael seemingly parrots his dad's roundabouts defence of people like Arkan. This was Giovanni being interviewed on the BBC's Hard Talk in 2004. Did you know Arkan when he was a, a murderer and a bank robber, a robber in, in Europe? Or did you only know him when he was practicing genocide as a, as a warlord? I don't know. I was not present. But on the evidence that I have seen, I do not believe that there was sufficient admissible evidence to provide a conviction. Dad would paint it that what a tabloid or someone has to say about someone who, yeah, he was, in, or he was involved in some organized crime in Belgrade, but organized crime moving on to genocide, dad would absolutely outright deny. Like that's all bollocks then. And you? Pardon? What's your view? Having met Jalco, I didn't see him as, uh, what's the type of person? I mean, what the fuck is the type of person that commits mass genocide? From my overlapping with him and from my, my, my knowing of him or even working for him, I never got the impression he was that type of person. I struggle with this a little bit. If you're around someone who, kind of a, a, a mass murderer, but they're lovely to you and they never give any sign to you that there's anything wrong with them and that they've done anything evil, they treated you well, they, they were always respectful, they were always lovely. But later you find out, you know, they, they weren't so lovely. There was some stuff going on that was questionable. Would, would you not think, oh, God, that, that person I was friends with or that I trusted or that, that I looked up to? I didn't, look, I didn't look up to any of these people. Again, it was, it was beyond me to look not up to. you, I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about your dad more so. Um, Probably, again, he'd probably say something fucking smart, like, perfectly normal. You find me one head of state from certain parts of the world or in certain periods of history that didn't commit crimes. So, is it that he's a spy? Or is it that his friends aren't really that bad? Is it that Michael doesn't see these people and their acts as really that bad? I don't know what to think about this. Frankly, I'm not that interested in opening the intricate debate about whether in fact the world's view of Arkan was wrong. I'm willing to go with the majority view here. The vast majority, might I add, that's backed up by evidence and testimony. That being my conclusion, I'm still confused as to what Giovanni was doing here. Miriana was insistent it wasn't anything dodgy. My father was a military man in pension when uh, he met Giovanni. My father would never let me be with a man or marry the man which deals with uh, arms. 
and drugs. I need to say that to you because that is all lie. And why, I don't. Why, why do you think people? Why do you think people say these things then? Because he was connected with the Arkan. If you are in that company, they thought you must be dealing with this sort of stuff, which is nonsense. Giovanni was very, very well educated and intelligent man to go in something like that, especially during sanctions time, to deal with arms. I mean, he certainly didn't need something like that. Milica Stojanovic, the Serbian journalist, had her own take on Giovanni's Yugoslav jaunt. That was the time when such people were very also popular here, especially also because the propaganda here was that the Western world is hating us. So if you have someone here who came from some Western country, look like he's rich or you make him look rich, he's married our woman, it, it was easy for him to become very popular and no one, no one would question it. I know that he was here, I know that at the time he was like popular and at some point we just stopped talking about him, someone new came up. I can understand why it would be nice to hang out with Arkan in the 90s in Serbia because of all that fame and all that money and all that situations in you can do whatever you want to do. But that's only if you don't really care of what this guy is actually doing. That's the only way I could imagine you could hang up with him if you don't know or don't care what is he doing and how did he earn all this money in such poor country with embargo and everything. And Charlotte Eager had her take too. You've got to not mind what they're doing. Because you know, everybody knew what they were doing. It wasn't a secret. It was very, very well known. So you've got to not mind what they were doing. And also these people, they are frightening people to be with. You know, they're frightening. So you've got to have a lot of courage, actually, to hang out with people like that. And be very clever, because otherwise you might say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. And they've got to, I guess, need you in some way, shape or form. But you've got to, you've got to not mind what they were up to. With all that in mind, I asked Michael, in me doing this, am I putting myself in danger? Well, the, the same would go for me. In me sitting here telling you, talking to you about things I've never told another soul on this planet, am I putting myself in danger? Or maybe just by airing it publicly, I'm actually protecting myself <laughs> in case I become, I don't know, expendable. You're fine. You don't have anything to worry about. But, but it's a serious point because it's something that's come up time and time again when I'm reaching out to people is, look, I'll talk to you off the record, but this guy is, you know, he's connected to people who will do you damage. And, 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 and it's something that I've thought about. Look, anyone listening to this, they may come to the end and just think, fuck me, what a, what a mad, crazy, insane set of circumstances and life. For me, it's just normal. For us, it's just been normal. So what is extreme and nerving to the average person? You know, for us, it's just normal. It's the everyday occurrence. So is would anyone feel any sense of fear? Yeah, he's associated with some, some pretty publicly held to be nasty people. But maybe I'm not the best qualified to answer that one, because for me, he's just dad. 
Maybe Michael's judgment is tainted by that fact. Or maybe it's difficult to divorce yourself from the life you've been afforded from your dad's connections. A life Michael describes with a wry smile as a life less ordinary. Because there's one other thing you should know about too. And that's that Arkan gave Michael his first big break. That's next time. Swindler Saviour Mobster Spy is a What's the Story original production. Our music is supplied by KPM and our lawyers, who are definitely accredited, are Felicity Price and Emily Barber at Reviewed and Cleared. The series is produced and edited by me, Callum McRae, and my executive producers are Daryl Brown and Sophie Ellis. If you've enjoyed this podcast, and we hope you have, please follow and leave a review.